This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I think one of the other things about grief is that it gives you clarity about what matters and what really doesn't. And so for me, it matters that you use your time well, and it matters that you use your time for the benefit of other people. We couldn't be in a world that needs that more. This week, my guest is the author, public speaker, and co-founder of the Women's Equality Party UK, Catherine Mayer. Catherine started her career in journalism and years later found the time to also start a political party of which she's now the president. She has written several books, a few of which we touch on in our discussion. In this episode, Catherine and I also spoke about her losing her husband, the musician Andy Gill, to COVID-19 last year. We discussed the grief that followed, the love she's holding, and the path she's currently on. To me, this was an important conversation on the subject of grief, and I thank Catherine for her candor. I hope many will come away from it with a stronger sense of purpose. Catherine Mayer, thank you so much for coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you about your work and your party and your book. Um, But I want to start by asking you a question that I ask everyone, and it's about how our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. Yeah. And and because of that, I'm wondering what you think is missing from your resume. Um, my resume is actually very hard to wrestle into shape anyway, because I have what might charitably be called a portfolio career. Um, I do a lot of different things. Um, but I think the thing that people wouldn't know, um, and I'm sorry to start on a sad note is that some people will be aware that um, I was widowed a year ago, but what they won't understand about that is that my husband was a musician and quite a well-known musician, and he died with a lot of projects that were still going. So for the past year, I'm also working in the music industry, which is uh, (laughs) not not something I'd done before, but I'm in the process of putting out uh, a big a record, a kind of compilation record of covers of his work, the work of his band and gang of four, uh, his band gang of four um, uh, by very world famous musicians. So it's really, um, as I say, I already had a portfolio career and now um, very much against my will, uh, I've added another string to that bow. Well, I'm, I'm excited to watch that come out and and see how that is and I cannot imagine what it is like to to have to do that like obviously you feel like you're carrying on a legacy and so there's there's the positive side of it but then obviously this is this is something to wrestle with I'm guessing yes although um I think I'm so many people this year have lost um loved ones to the pandemic and although um that it is incredibly painful to have lost him. He was the love of my life. And I also lost my stepfather 41 days before Andy, my husband. So my mother was widowed just before me. So um, we had a lot to deal with and then going straight into lockdown. In spite of that, I would say that I'm very lucky because um, he died right at the start of the pandemic before they stopped people going into hospitals and being with the people they loved. 
He died before they banned funerals, before they banned memorials. And unlike many people who have to deal with the death of, of someone they love, there was never any question for me about how I would celebrate him because he had all these projects going on. And to me, it was, you know, absolutely a no-brainer that I would continue his work. So um, in that sense, uh, very difficult and painful, though it may have been, um, I have a kind of direction and purpose that I think a lot of people in my situation are deprived of and, and find themselves adrift. And I have been able to keep celebrating him, which is, I think, for so many people who have lost people in the pandemic, precisely the thing they've been denied. Their, their loved ones are becoming just one more statistic and they haven't even been able to come together and celebrate who they were. So I, I'm very aware of my good fortune as well. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, continuing his projects and his work, and you also spoke about your mother. And so I know that you and your mother wrote a book titled Good Grief. And so I'm wondering how that came to be. And since that is more in your line of work, how was it sort of writing that memoir? Mm. Well, what happened, as I say, is that we were widowed very closely together and then locked down. And so right at the point where we were in the first phase of grief, we also were not allowed to see people. We both um, live on our own. Um, and my mother, who is 87, had never lived on her own before. And although she's very capable, there were a lot of things she couldn't do. So the one human kind of area of human contact we had was that once a week I would go over to her house and I would put on all the, the mask and, and all the protective clothing. Yeah. But I would do the stuff that she couldn't do. Um, I would, you know, look at, I would care for her. And during those visits, at the end of every visit, we would kind of talk about what was going on. And so that became a kind of weekly institution. And around that time, both of us spontaneously started writing. She started writing letters to my dead stepfather to tell him about all the extraordinary things that were going on, including the death of my husband and the pandemic. And I started blogging because, because my husband had been a public figure. There was a lot of curiosity about him. I was getting press inquiries and inquiries from fans. And I thought it would be easier to try and answer everything at once. And so a publisher saw my blog posts and asked me to turn them into a book. And I said, I, I said, I think it's too early for that, but you've really got to look at these wonderful letters my mother's writing. And um, so I, uh, I sent the letters to the publisher and she came back to me and said, these are truly wonderful letters, but we need you to uh, write the book that goes around them. And so, mm. I, so I did. And that's basically about as close as we've ever got during this whole period of time. So, you know, we've never we've never hugged or anything like that. Um, and um, mostly I still keep more of a distance and wear a mask. But but we do at least have the regularity of seeing each other. And I still do that every week. I, I cook food for her. I um, do things like change her duvet, etc. And I help her with the online world because she'd never... 
She'd never, for example, used an online bank account or anything like that. Uh, she'd never had a smartphone. So there are a lot of things that somebody that age, however sharp and on the ball they are, will need help with. Yeah, like ordering groceries online from Ocado or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to ask you what advice you have for those dealing with grief, but I feel like it also sort of goes in with a question that I usually ask my guests later on. Um, you said that, you know, you, you do realize that you have some luck in that you can celebrate his memory and you have his work to continue. But I know, of course, that grief can be tough. And so I wonder in those really tough moments, what sort of does sustain you? Love. I mean, the thing about grief is it it's love. And, uh, and I really do have a, a strong sense of how lucky I am because I was with, you know, one of the best men in the world for nearly 30 years. We were just shy of our 30th anniversary. So, um, but also optimism, I have to say in, in, in the teeth of all of this, you know, I mean, we're going to go on to talk about the other things I do in my activism. And mm -hmm. I, I have, I have to be an optimist because every activist is an optimist. You're somebody who believes it's possible to make the world better as you, as you clearly do. And so, um, I think one of the other things about grief is that it gives you clarity about what matters and what really doesn't. And so for me, it matters that you use your time well, and it matters that you use your time for the benefit of other people. So that it couldn't be, we couldn't be in a world that needs that more. And, mm -hmm. and so, so to me, again, um, I, I've, have a sort of, if anything, a stronger sense of purpose than ever. Yeah. I, one thing I think about when it comes to grief is how I, there's not enough I can do to help someone going through grief because I'm just not able to fix that problem, which to me then comes off as me centering myself. And I think that's a horrible thing, but I do think that is what we all do. Yeah. We sort of center ourselves. It's like, well, I, I, all I can do is say sorry. And that's not enough. Do you have advice or something that you, you wish that people around you or people around someone experiencing great grief would do or say in the future to sort of help in those moments? Can I say that that's a very good question and also that your self-knowledge, your self-awareness there is a really good step that a lot of people don't have. And it's something, it's the other reason my mother and I wanted to write the book is because we became very quickly aware that people are incredibly awkward around grief, that often the, the um, it's a weird, it's a, it's a strange inversion. The responsibility ends up falling on the grieving to put everyone mm -hmm. else at their, at their ease. I don't um, want to bother them because they have too much. It's too awkward. Let me just, yeah. I'll leave them alone. And, and you sort of spend a lot of your time reassuring people that you're all right, whether you are or not, um, in order to make them worry less. And um, but I think people we, we listed in the book some of the funniest and most inappropriate things people have said to us. Um, but in doing that, we weren't trying to shame people because what we also make clear is that we'd much rather people said something to us, even if it's the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. the, the only thing that really hurts when you're grieving um, 
there are two things. One is that there are there is a small subsection of humanity who will see the bereaved as um, easy targets for fraud or to take advantage of. They see, you know, they see that your your defenses are down. And so both my mother and I have had to deal with numerous fraud attempts, attempted, bre attempted break-ins, um, particularly in my case, because there was publicity about Andy's death. Um, but my mother also had a break-in. Um, uh, and people in other ways trying to take advantage of you when you're in a, a reduced state. Now, luckily, this is a, this is a small and nasty subsection. But that is one thing that is a problem for the bereaved. And the other, I think, that is really painful, and it it's, goes to what you were talking about, is people who feel so awkward about death that they say, uh, all right, goodbye, I'm, I'm going to come back when, when you've had a year or so. I'm just going to drop out of sight. And there's a few people who literally ghost the bereaved. Um, every and I'm not just talking about our experience. I mean, I've talked right. clearly. One of the things that happens when you are grieving is that a lot of people who have already been through something similar will get in touch with their own experiences. And I've talked to so many people who've had people they thought of as very good friends just saying, "Sorry, can't cope with this. Uh, you know, see you in a year or so." And um, so those are the two things I would really say are inexcusable whereas people being a bit clumsy and a bit awkward it's natural I think however I mean I'm also very keen to talk about grief and to engage with people on this and, and not just grief death mortality the things that we try not to talk about because I think it will really help people um, to know how to how to deal with the grieving. So, I mean, just as an example, one of the questions you get asked the most often is, how are you? Yeah. And um, how are you is not actually a hugely helpful question um, because it's very probable that you have tried, you're trying to get a bit of stability and normality and you might not want to take your emotional temperature at that point in time. So you then get the choice of either giving a kind of an answer that is not entirely truthful, of, you know, sort of fine, 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 or you kind of suddenly go back into yourself. Um, whereas there are, there are all sorts of wonderful things that people do. They, they kind of, um, I mean, practical stuff that people do is so welcome. Um, and just, just things that, instead of asking questions where people actually have a have a good guess at what it is you might need and then they provide it even you know um before the lockdown people provide it bringing me food i don't think in the early weeks i'd have really eaten at all if people hadn't been right. um generous in that way but but the main thing is to engage and and also another thing i think is I think most of us actually want to be able to talk about the person we've lost. And so the thing of treating it as something embarrassing to be avoided is actually, uh, although an understandable reaction is, is not always a helpful one either. So it's lovely when people sort of share memories that they have or find photographs. Um, I've got, 
I deliberately sat here. That's a picture of Andy at the top there. Um, and I've got pictures of him all over the flat, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a nice thing to do. You know, right. I, I talk to him quite often. I also swear at him. So look, look, <laughs> look at the mess you've landed me with. You know, I never wanted to be involved in the bloody music industry. And now look. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, but it's really nice when we, just the other day, somebody sent me a photograph of me and him that I'd never seen before. It's lovely. Yeah. To celebrate the memory instead of. Yeah pretend that someone is gone. I, I do want to get into your your work, but I wonder if if what you've learned from COVID and from 2020 that you think the rest of us should know and, and take to heart. Well, two two separate strands, I'd say. One is the thing I've already slightly broached, which is we live in a culture that is unprepared for death increasingly i mean i actually wrote a book back in um that was published back in 2011 called a mortality uh, the pleasures and perils of living agelessly and it was about the ways in which we increasingly believe in the possibility of sort of outrunning age and death mm -hmm. um whether it's through cosmetic procedures or eating healthily or you know just not dying you know there are a lot of people who believe in various forms of prolonging their lives and there's nothing wrong with that, um, provided that you also take on board the reality that we all will die. And that failure, the, the more, I sort of think of it as being a little bit like a kind of monster in a horror movie, that the more you look away from it, the more you don't see it, the more scary it becomes. Mm -hmm. Whereas the more that you realize it's also part of life, the more you are able to really accept that this will happen at some point, that you're not, you know, you want to live as long and as healthily as possible, but it is an inevitability and that you make preparations for it. You talk about, you talk about it with other people because, you know, when Andy died, it was very sudden. Um, you know, he's probably one of the earliest victims of COVID yeah. in this country. And he had no will. Um, I didn't know where anything was. Um, you know, so there's a, a level of practical disruption that you can avoid. But I think much more it's the kind of emotional, you, you can't prepare for it, but you, it, I think in having honest conversations about it, you do diminish the, some of the fear. And um, the other thing, though, about COVID, and this goes very much to the work I was already doing as an activist, is it has revealed um, structural inequalities. You know, the, there was a lot of nonsense talked at the beginning. We had the prime minister here talking about COVID as being a leveler. Uh, you know, it could attack anyone. And of course, it can attack anyone, but it hasn't attacked people equally. It has exacted a higher death toll among communities who were already more vulnerable because they were poorer, because they were living in closer proximity to each other, because their health was already poor, because they were in frontline jobs and they weren't properly protected, because they were disregarded by society, because they were old or disabled. Um, it took a higher toll of all of these people, and it was allowed to do so, and there were unnecessary deaths. 
So I think it has given us a really clear image of structural inequality. And then, of course, the impact of the pandemic and the disruption has been very gendered as well. So women have borne the brunt of so many different things in it. Um, women have been more likely to lose their jobs because they were the kind of jobs that would go quickest in, in some of the industries that were the hardest hit. Women have been expected, if they were employed, to manage being employed while homeschooling, while caring for people, while doing all the stuff they normally do. Um, and of course, rates of domestic violence have risen. So for all of these different reasons, COVID, what we can learn from COVID is what we really already knew, that our society is disfigured by inequality, that we need to sort that out. Absolutely. Well, yeah, what you said about, you know, the prime minister, you see that he and also Trump went straight into hospital, taken care of, and you're sitting here like, you may not be the healthiest of men, yet you're going to come out fine because yeah. you are two powerful white men. And, and here we are just losing people and the numbers just keep rising in the US and it's now we've become just sort of numb to it. And as you said, people have become a statistic, which how how do you feel when your family member becomes a statistic? It's just so dehumanizing. That's one of the reasons I felt impelled to tell Andy's story is because um, at the beginning when he died, you know, that, that people could begin to it could still understand that this was an individual and right. for, for every individual who dies, there's an average of five people directly, very directly impacted by that death. But at the, as soon as it started going into the tens of thousands and then the hundreds of thousands, you're in a situation where the human brain no longer understands this as a, as a series of human tragedies with all of these knock on effects and begins to become numb. And so, and we've had no, and I think in America too, there's been no real memorial, no opportunity for national mourning, nothing that really enables people to feel that their own human tragedies are not just going to be subsumed into these unimaginable numbers. And so it's incredibly important that we, who are the grieving, assert those individual stories. Um, and I, were, I, I, um, I joined a group um, called COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice UK. And we've been uh, also campaigning for a judge-led independent um, public inquiry mm -hmm. with a rapid review phase so that the lessons of the pandemic are learned and acted on. Um, of course, there's a huge amount of resistance to this because people think that it's all about blame. I mean, I do think at some point it's going to be important to hold people accountable for the mistakes and the and the cronyism and the corruption that have impeded the response. But what's really crucial is that the lessons are learned in time to save other lives. And so that's what we're campaigning for. And we're also campaigning for appropriate mental health support because much as... Um, things like grief counselling can be useful for many, many of the bereaved in this pandemic. It isn't about grief, it's about trauma because they had people ripped away from them and they didn't get to say goodbye um, 
I have a friend at the moment whose um, parent is is dying, and because of the lockdown restrictions, there is no possibility of her going to see this dying parent. But not only that, there is no possibility of anyone getting close to this person in order to affect goodbyes. And so they're reduced to FaceTiming at enormous mm. distance through windows. Um, and that, you know, that's just one, that's just one story. And so I know so many people who the last they saw of their loved one was where the ambulance took them away. Um, and, you know, they, they then are, as I say, not able to have funerals or anything. So, yeah, it's a, we're, we're in a time where asserting humanity is one of the most important things that we can do. These numbers are huge, but every single number was somebody who had a family, who had friends, who had a place in the world, who meant something. And, you know, it's, it's really funny because it's not funny at all, but you know the way that that phrase, all lives matters, get, gets um, bandied about as some kind of awful, um, it, it's used against black lives matters um, to me right. almost exactly the opposite usually when people say all lives matters. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of ignoring the point of black lives matters. But I think that there is a, I think we can invest that phrase with a real meaning if we actually understand, in fact, that COVID not only wasn't a leveller, but that it hit, for example, here it's hit the black population much harder. It's, it's hit the Asian population much harder. And that there were, as I say, also, you know, this notion of people had underlying conditions as if that meant their lives were less valuable. Right. Um, that people were old as if that meant their lives were less valuable. All lives matter in a very real way. And and if you're, you know, if you're going to argue for that, then you really have to understand what you're arguing for. Well, so you mentioned, you know, how it's hit women harder because it hits on every way and economically and socially, family-wise. And so I want to talk about how you founded the Women's Equality Party in 2015. And if you could give my listeners who are outside of the UK a little bit more background on the party. Yes, I'm wearing, I'm wearing the t-shirt. <laughs> I love um, it. I'm wearing a Women Support Women t-shirt. I know. I saw, I saw it's a good one. But I'll show you. I'll show you. See, it's, um, it's the initials we and then the right. equal sign. Um, so... Um, I, yeah, my background um, is in journalism and, and as a writer, and um, but I uh, am on the founding committee of a, a, fest, a big festival that is now global but started in London called the Women of the World Festival, the WOW Festival. Um, and um, in 2015, I uh, went to an event at the WOW Festival in which... Um, women were, female politicians were talking about what their parties would do for women, you know, if they were elected. And I found myself in the audience getting increasingly depressed because these were all sort of bright women, really bright women. 
different political persuasions, but all of them were the kind of women you'd really want to see in power. Mm-hmm. And none of them were anywhere near the top of their parties. Um, and I was just thinking about the fact also that the way they were talking, they had so much more in common with each other than they seemed to me to have with some of the dinosaurs in their parties as well. And so when um, there was a Q&A session, and this was a big theatre with about 400 people in it, um, I got the microphone and I, uh, I just said, um, don't you think we actually need a women's equality party to, to, you know, you all sound so collegiate and there is so much that brings us together. Do we not need another party to, to sort of bring this together? And I was also, I was talking, um, and I, I'm not sure people present would have understood why, I was talking about um, a, a really terrible party here, um, UKIP, the, the United oh, Kingdom yes. Independence Party. Um, and I was sort of saying that we could use the UKIP model. And why I was saying that is UKIP, that there had been, in 2015, people would still say to you, a small party can't make a difference. An outside party can't make a difference. And I was already going, and this is before the Brexit vote. I was pointing at UKIP and saying, there is a small party that is actually never, you know, in, in electoral terms, they, they only ever once directly got an MP elected. Um, they weren't, they were never going to be the party of government. And yet they have had a more seismic effect on politics um, than you can possibly believe. And the reason that that was possible is because all the old mainstream parties are weak and confused. And they will, instead of asserting clear policies they'll copy anything they think is a vote winner so i was going okay let's show that feminism is a vote winner if we can do that then all the old parties will make themselves over in our image and they'll deliver our objectives without us having to be elected to do it so that was the i stood up and basically said that and um i said if anybody wants to discuss it further i'll be in the bar (laughs) which was potentially a very expensive thing to say um, because quite a lot of people followed me to the bar. It could have been a really big round of drinks. Um, But also social media picked up on it. And by the time I got home, I discovered that I had, in theory, said that I was going to found this party, whereas what I'd actually said was... There you go. (laughs) I'd I'd said, wouldn't it be a good idea? Um, And so I rang... um, I have a friend... Um, who is very well known here in the UK. Uh, She's a a broadcaster and comedian and polymath called Sandy Toxvig. Um, I think in America you've got Bake Off, so you probably see her in in the Great British Bake Off there. Um, But um, anyway, I rang... Sandy is also on the, the founding committee of the WOW Festival, so I rang her and I said, you won't believe what happened. I, I seem to have accidentally started the women's equality party and she and she went but darling that's my idea and I went what (laughs) What?" and she said as part of the closing ceremony for the festival which she would organize every year she was intending to create a kind of um a women's government 
you know, obviously not a real one, but she was going to bring her ideal government of women onto the stage. And she said, I was just about to ring you and offer you the job of foreign secretary. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so we decided uh, to work together to, to set up the party and we did it. And it's again, it's one of these things, if you ever, if you ever actually thought about it in advance, you'd never do it. Um, you, you know, it's, it's an enormous amount of work. It's crazy. Um, we will never, you know, it's t- totally took over our lives, um, you know, and we're constantly still doing stuff for the party. But the party also exists now very much independently of, of us. Um, and uh, although our primary method of making change is to get the other parties to copy us, which, by the way, works really well. And we at elections, we uh, deliver our manifestos to the other parties with a ribbon and a sign saying, please steal me, because uh, we, <laughs> we, we, we want them to try and neutralize us by stealing our policies. Um, but we've actually already um, way ahead of schedule got somebody elected at um, the uh, 2019 elections. So we already have our first elected representative and we're now gearing up um, for the London mayoral and assembly elections, um, which were supposed to be last May, but they, they've been delayed by the pandemic until this May and will be very hard for us to fight because um uh, you're not allowed to do any of the stuff like uh can you know door-to-door canvassing right. or uh you know standing on street corners and accosting people and um it means that the old parties will be massively able to outspend us on things like leaflets and advertising hoardings but we still reckon that we've got actually a very good chance of getting some people elected and of also um forcing onto the agenda some really important subjects so just as a for example um our mayoral candidate mandu reed who by the way is um also the leader of the party and um is the first ever woman of color to lead a political party in this country um she has called for um, London to be a sanctuary city in the same way that some may- some of your mayors right. in, in America did against those terrible ice pol- uh, immigration policies. Um, so here we want London to be a sanctuary city so that any um, migrant women who would be denied refuge uh if in cases of domestic abuse because their passports are stamped with no recourse to to public funds and so they're not allowed into the refuges we're saying look if you can set aside hotel rooms for returning travelers to isolate in then you Mm -hmm. can set aside hotel rooms for migrant women who need to flee abusive relationships Um, so we we are going to make sure that the um mayoral candidates aside from mandu uh support this policy yeah so stop with the like scarcity complex that we all have about resources exactly okay well you said something about your method and how it's you know please steal me do you think that the people in power in the uk really in this moment want equality or do you think they're sort of paying lip service to it 
I think that's a really good, again, a really good question and one that um, is at the heart of why we're not at equality, because um, basically, if you talk to business leaders, business leaders all know that um, equality isn't just something you do for reasons of social justice. It creates stronger, more resilient organizations with a better talent pool, with um, better decision making because of the diversity around the table. Um, they, they know that, and yet they often do a poor job of setting that um, through. And there are a series of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is that there are always people who are scared that equality means taking away from as opposed to giving to. Um, you know, and there's this there's this notion of the kind of fight of equality as a piece of cake, where if I have a piece of cake, there's less for you. And of course, it doesn't work like that at all. Mm -hmm. um, but um, politicians are like that. And, and even more so. And one of the, you know, that there are still an overwhelming number of men in politics. And one of the problems with achieving equality is that although it is actually so much better for men, um, better in their health outcomes, better in their mental health outcomes, better in, in relieving social pressures from them, so many different ways, economically better, a lot of men are still scared of the idea and they think that we're coming for them in some way. And, and you know, so um, one of one of the challenges that I've set myself is is to kind of build male allyship around this, but but understanding that they're doing it not for us, but for them. Right. Well, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people recently who, back to the U.S. example, that if we were to uplift black women and make sure that they were taken care of, everyone else would be taken care of. Yes. So why is it so difficult for us to try and do that? And there have been some shameful episodes, you know, back in back in um, suffragette history, for example, where um, white women saw the uplifting of black women as being dangerous to to them and taking mm -hmm. taking away from them, and it's this it's this way in which um, interests are perceived to be against each other when right. actually when actually it's the opposite. Um, you know, we you know, and thank thank God for the votes of black women. <laughs> I have to say, by the way. I'm I lived in Georgia, so I got a lot of thanks all of a sudden. Do you know what? I, I danced. Um, I put Georgia on my mind on, <laughs> and I danced that morning. I was so happy. Um, it was so amazing to see the vote go that way. I poured some champagne. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, who are the women who have inspired you? Well, my grandmother would definitely be one of them. In fact, both grandmothers. Um, one of my grandmothers was a, a novelist um, who uh, she and she she was widowed early and she she lived a, a very very full life um, and um, the other one was uh, was a singer she was an RKO music uh, music radio what am I trying to say Radio City music star and okay. <laughs> um, she worked with George Gershwin and various people 
and um, again, sort of like both of the, both of them were these extraordinary, vibrant women who um, outlived husbands and um, <laughs> you know have you you know went went into their very late years still act, very active. And you know, my mother now is a published author for the first time at eighty-seven, and she's very sharp and active. And I, I kind of really admire. I have always admired older women um, who who keep going and who bring to bear all the benefits of of age. But I also, I mean, I admire one of my original hags, as it were, for that TED talk um, is a politician who built an entire career out of being woefully underestimated by her opponents. I'm talking about Angela Merkel, who, of course, mm -hmm. is now now heading to the end of her time as German chancellor. Um, but has, I mean, if you look at her record, if you look at her enduring popularity, if you look at the things that she managed to do, including um, heading up coalitions of left and right and um, basically kind of playing this careful long game um, right the way through. And then, of course, when there was the migrant crisis, using all that political capital that she had to open the borders and say that the migrants were welcome. Right. That, that is a woman who is admirable and yet so quiet and so so much the opposite of everything that we that you had in Trump and that, that we, I'm afraid, have in, in our prime minister here, of people who make a lot of noise and really deliver know, nothing deliver nothing yeah i mean i i also admire and love older women too so and i hope that people feel the same way about me when i become an older woman <laughs> <laughs> um so you we've spoken about two of your books and you know also starting the party but one of your books that i found that was interesting um, was titled Charles, the heart of a king. And so I'm wondering in light of like the modern day monarchy and all the scrutiny and reporting that we have around them and sort of, I would just say mania, what was your experience writing that book? Um, it was, it was absolutely fascinating. Um, it took me kind of years to, to do, um, in, in the sense that uh, I worked for Time magazine for a long time um, and before that for other news weeklies and I covered the royals very closely. So uh, I, I, was, I was a foreign correspondent in London at the point where um, Princess Diana died, for example. So I was, I was wow. right, right in the middle of all of that coverage. And I very quickly appreciated that People think about royal reporting as a kind of soft option, a bit like celebrity reporting, and it's nothing of the kind. And the reason it's nothing of the kind is twofold. One is that unlike celebrities, the royals actually have um, huge constitutional powers and, um, you know, soft power, but they also have actual um, power. You know, there's been a story here recently about the fact that the that the queen has um all that money oh well the money yes the money yeah, that the, she, the money that she sort of figured out a way to have something written so that it was 
Well, it's figuring out. Is that, yeah. Yes, laws. It's what they, they can intervene in, in lawmaking in ways that people don't appreciate. And of course, like if you're in the UK, people think of them as being, um, think of her as being the Queen of England, the, the Queen of Scotland, um, the, you know, the Queen of the different nations of the United Kingdom. But actually, what people forget is that she's the Queen of, of um, other countries as well. And then there's, you know, and there's also still a Commonwealth role. And um, so these are figures who are much more powerful than your uh, common or garden celebrity. Um, though, of course, we now have the fascinating um, spectacle of Meghan and, and the um, intersection of, of, of celebrity with, with royalty with some very bumpy results. Um, but, but the other reason it's very hard to cover the royals is that they are protected by layers of official secrecy. And so unlike um, other kinds of public figures, they have no duty to transparency. You can't call them to account. And it's very hard to get insight into them. And for me, Prince Charles was always the most interesting of them because he is uh, somebody who is much more interventionist. He will be the next monarch unless for some reason he doesn't outlive his mother, but you know he, he probably will be. Mm -hmm. And he's already had a huge impact on public life. And so I wanted to write a kind of serious political biography of him. And I worked for years to get access, and then I did eventually get access to him and was able to spend time observing him at close hand and sitting down with him to talk and, you know, going to dinner at his uh, country house, a private, private dinner and, you know, that sort of thing. So it, but it took years to get, it took years to get that access. And, um, wow. um, but, but, you know, I'm interested in power. It's the same reason that, that, uh, in, in activism, you have to understand how power structures work in order also then to make things to, to make things better. Right. How power retains power. Yes. Yeah. Well, Catherine, I have really enjoyed this. And, and so I want to end on the two questions that I love to ask my guests. And the first is, what is your greatest fear for humanity? And you don't have to apologize if it starts us on a sad note because we like the truth here. So my greatest fear for humanity is um, that too many people will buy into the myth of progress, that progress is linear and constant and that you don't have to do anything to move forward. Um, the one benefit I can think of of the appalling Trump presidency is that it showed people how very quickly um, gains can be reversed. It showed how much damage can be done in, in a short period of time and um, how very, very um, important it is that we focus on defending the rights and protections we already have as well as expanding them for greater equality. And my biggest fear is complacency that people people still assume that like, oh, it's all going in the right direction. We can just let it slide. Um, 
And I think I think there is a resurgent, I think there is a kind of resurgent populist far right um, that is emboldened by by not just emboldened that is boosted by the polarized world that is also being created through the digital revolution, through social media, through through the the ways in which the world is genuinely becoming more and more divided between rich and poor, for example. And so, again, I think we have to be massively vigilant. And um, my fear, my greatest fear is that we're not vigilant enough, that we're not determined enough, that we don't do enough. What is your greatest hope for humanity? I think in every moment of turbulence, there is a possibility for change in the right direction and at speed because the other thing that holds back progress is if things are too stable if people are too comfortable then they kind of live live with things being uh you know not quite right um i'm going to i i want to mention before we go there's one other thing that i that is very close to my heart that that mm -hmm. another organization i co-founded which is a festival called the prima donna Fe called prima donna festival which we launched in 2019 and it's a a wonderful festival of writing and creativity that puts women at the center and voices from the margins at the center and we call it um the world as it should be for one weekend because we because we <laughs> we think that what we're doing is we're coming together and we're imagining how wonderful the world could be and for me my greatest hope is that we can seize the current turbulence, that we can seize the learnings of the pandemic that showed us exactly where inequality lies, that we can use the imagination that comes through the creativity of voices of people who are very often pushed to the margins, and that we can make change at speed and build that beautiful, better world that will be better for all of us. I hope for that too. I, the learnings I think is, is very, is a very big thing. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I think that everyone will enjoy listening to this episode and there was lots of, of learning to come from it as well. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.